Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark 4, 1 through 20. Again, he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teaching he said to them, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Other seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is God's word. Well, if you have uh, your Bibles with you, I encourage you to keep them open to Mark chapter 4 as we study it together. Uh, Let's pray as we get started. Father, we ask that as we read this parable, this famous, well-known parable, that you would make us people who Jesus would describe as good soil. May the word go deep, establish roots that are strong, may it be protected from being choked out by the deceitfulness of the things of this world, may it grow and flourish and cast the seeds of the gospel out into the world. Or we pray that you would do this work among us today, and we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, I'm sure that at some point in your life, you have had the experience where a friend has recommended a book to you, and they were so enthusiastic about it that they basically insisted that you read it too. They tell you how this book has changed their life, and they tell you how much you are going to love it too. So you make some time to read the book, eager to find out what is so amazing about it, only to be left wondering how it ever got published in the first place. In fact, perhaps it's so bad that you're not only questioning the whole publishing industry, 
but also your friend, and now your own apparent tendency to let people with such poor judgment have an influence in your life. The same thing plays out in a hundred different ways in our lives every day, whether it's a book that a friend recommends, or a movie, a restaurant, a politician, a historical event, or some cultural change, something else. Two people look at the exact same thing and come away with completely different opinions of it. We've already seen that play out here in the book of Mark in the way that people have reacted to Jesus. Some leave everything behind to follow him. Others are threatened by him. Some cling to him as their only hope in life and death, and others say that he is a lunatic and that he's out of his mind. Some call him the Messiah, the Son of God, and others say that he is possessed by demonic forces. They are looking at the same man. They are hearing the same exact teaching. They are witnessing the same miraculous signs. Some will give their lives to follow him, and others will one day demand his life. How is it that they are looking at the exact same thing and coming to such completely different conclusions about Jesus? It's a thread that is woven throughout the whole book of Mark, what scholars have often referred to as the theme of insiders and outsiders in this gospel. Some see Jesus and are captivated by him. Others, seeing the exact same thing, reject him. It's a question that we might ask about the world around us today. How can two people encounter Jesus in the Scriptures? And afterward, one sees Him as Savior and Lord, the other could not care less. What is it that makes the difference? Because when it comes to Jesus, it is not a matter of simple opinion, like whether or not someone likes a particular book or thinks it's not so good. We will either see Jesus as the King who rules over every other King to whom we owe our very lives, or we won't. We will either know him as Savior or just another guy from ancient history who does not really matter at all. What makes the difference when it comes to what we think of him? It's a question that we wrestle with daily as we long to see our friends, our neighbors, our family members receive and believe the gospel and see Jesus as Savior. And it's the question that Jesus addresses in the passage that we're looking at this morning. He's out and about in Galilee again, and he began to teach beside the sea, we read in verse 1. And as he's teaching there, a great crowd gathered around him. Mark often mentions the crowd. It comes up a lot throughout this gospel, how eager they were to be near Jesus. Already we've seen the crowd become so thick that some friends cut a hole in the roof of a house where Jesus was in order to get closer to him. Then in chapter 3, we read that the crowd is made up of people who have traveled from beyond Galilee to see him, and Mark, at that point, begins to describe this crowd as a great crowd. Thirty-three times in this book, Mark will refer to the crowd that wants to get as close to Jesus as possible. But we all know that many of these people will not ultimately follow him and put their trust in him. In fact, a relatively small number of them will. By the end of the book, this crowd, the same crowd, will demand the release of a violent criminal so that they could see Jesus crucified in his place. Eventually, most of these people will walk away from following him. And I think Mark wants us to notice the crowd, to see their enthusiasm for Jesus at this point in the book, and then to see things change completely as Jesus heads to the cross. Knowing 
that that is where things are headed, he tells us that there was a very large crowd gathered about him. There are so many people, in fact, that Jesus gets into a boat and pushes back from the shore a little ways. I don't think this is a way of getting away from the crowd like he's bothered by them. I think Jesus has compassion for the people who are in the back, who want to hear him but have a hard time because there are so many people packed in so close. And by getting into a boat and pushing back from the crush of people, they can spread out along the shore, along the water's edge, and more people will be able to hear his voice clearly. There are even a couple of places that archaeologists think that this teaching may have taken place, and they're sort of natural amphitheaters where the hill slopes down to the water and curves around the place where Jesus would have been seated in his boat. It would maximize the ability of the crowd to hear Jesus' voice clearly. Everyone at this point would be able to hear him, even the people who couldn't get a good seat. And looking at this huge crowd from his little boat in the water, Jesus began to teach in parables. Jesus loved to teach in parables. We see that throughout the Gospels. They're short stories meant to make a point, and they drew heavily on the context of Jesus' listeners. In this case, Jesus tells a story about a farmer who is planting seeds of grain. For everyone in this crowd, this was a familiar sight. Every one of them knew all about this method of broadcast seeding, which is just reaching into a bag of seeds, flinging it onto a patch of ground, and hoping that something will come up. It was not a super precise way of doing it. Some seed would inevitably land in places where it would never grow. In the parable, some of the seed falls on the path where the ground is packed so firmly that the seeds just sit on top and the birds come along and eat it. In my backyard, there are several patches where there is no grass, uh, and those patches are all in places where my dog likes to sit and look through the fence at people walking along the sidewalk, and she's packed down the ground there so hard that no grass comes up, and even though I have tried to scatter grass seed and water it so that it will come up, nothing ever does, because even if something does begin to come up, she sits on that patch of ground again and packs it down a little bit more, and it struggles. Any attempt to put down grass seed on those spots is pointless because it's so firmly packed that it's like rock hard. Those seeds don't stand a chance of ever actually taking root in ground like that. Other seed in Jesus' story lands on rocky soil. It does begin to grow, but when the ground is more rock than dirt, the roots don't develop. So that when hot weather comes, the scorching sun shines down, this fragile little plant withers. Some seed lands on ground that has not yet been cleared of weeds, and when it sprouts and begins to grow, it has to compete for sunlight and for water, and eventually it is choked out. It loses the battle. But some of the farmer's seed lands on good soil, where it takes root and grows and eventually produces a harvest. It's a simple story, and I think for the crowd listening to this story, it's pretty straightforward. But then Jesus says in verse 9, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's one of a, a couple of references in this passage to another part of the Bible. In the book of Isaiah, God condemns his people's idolatry and mocks the idols that they worship. He says that they are lifeless, powerless, helpless, and that even though they have eyes, they don't see anything. And even though they have ears, they don't hear anything. They are carved from wood that might have otherwise ended up in the firewood pile. And even though these people think that their idols will protect them, 
God tells them that they are worthless. And the worst part is that these people have become like their idols. They have ears, but they do not listen to the voice of God. So when Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, it is a call to listen to God's voice. As he reminds this crowd of the book of Isaiah, he is calling them to listen to God's voice. It is a call to to turn from idolatry, from sin, and to listen to what God is saying. Because there is more to this short story than it seems. I think for most of the people in this crowd, Jesus' parable sounded like some pretty unnecessary farming advice. All of them knew, all of them knew already that seed won't sprout on the path, that it will just end up feeding the birds. They knew about how farmers needed to work the ground, dig up and remove stones, and pull out invasive weeds. None of that was rocket science. They already knew it. They knew that farmers would use tools to break up the soil, to make it into good soil, so that the seeds that landed on it would have an easier time growing strong roots and have a better chance of producing a harvest. So for the, shore, the people that were gathered on the shore that day, I think Jesus' lesson to them might have been a little bit of a disappointment. They had high expectations of, them, of, of him. We see them gather with great enthusiasm. They, they want to be as close to him as possible, and there's a reason for that. They've seen him do miraculous things. They've heard him teach from the Scriptures with great and amazing authority. Now, he is just giving out really obvious and unnecessary gardening advice, and I think that they would have been a little disappointed by that, except for what he says in verse 8 where he tells the crowd that the seed growing in good soil will yield 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Back then, if you were able to reap uh, twice as much grain as you planted, evidently that was considered a successful harvest. If the weather was just right and everything went just according to plan, maybe you could get five or six times the amount that you planted. The good soil in Jesus' parable produces 30, 60, and 100 times the amount of seed that was planted, which is a clue that maybe this story is about something other than farming. So he says to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. In this simple story about farming, if they listen closely, they will hear the voice of God. But it isn't until some time later when the disciples and a few others ask for clarification, that Jesus explains it to them. Most of Jesus' parables are simple. They're typically pretty short and straightforward. They make a single point. This one is a little bit more complex. It has some layers to it. And so he tells them that the seed that the farmer is tossing is the Word of God. Eventually, the farmer will represent everyone who shares God's Word, but right now, The farmer represents Jesus himself, who is traveling around from town to town and proclaiming the kingdom of God to crowds just like the one who heard this parable and teaching from Scripture. He is casting the seeds of God's Word, the truth of God's promises, which are being kept in Christ himself into the lives of the people who were gathered on the shore of the Sea of Galilee that day. And those seeds are landing on different types of people. Some are hardened against it. And the word bounces right off. The birds, Jesus says, represent Satan, who immediately comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. It never has a chance. Because of the hardness of the soil itself, the seed was vulnerable and easy to take away. 
Scripture describes Satan as the father of lies who deceives people into disobeying and denying God's Word. But here, his job is done for him. The seeds of the gospel are easily swept away from the person who does not think he needs it. Second, there is another type of person represented by rocky ground. That person receives the gospel with joy, and the seed sprouts and springs up quickly. It's an exciting thing and something that many of us have seen before. The joy and enthusiasm that people have when they profess faith in Christ is amazing. But we know, if we're honest, that it doesn't always last. In rocky soil, the seed may sprout, but it has a hard time developing the roots that will make it strong. Hardships will come, Jesus says. Tribulation or persecution arises on account of the Word. They are the moments that make someone realize that there is a cost of being Christ's disciple. That tribulation and persecution are part of what it means to follow Him. Even if we live in a time and place where our lives are not at risk for our faith, where the most that we will typically experience is being thought of as strange or outdated perhaps or silly for believing what we do, even that is sometimes too much. When the social cost or the professional consequences or the ways that the gospel sets us apart from the world around us are simply too great, that pressure rises and the sun rises on that young plant that has sprouted from this rocky soil. The seeds are tested and often they fail. The initial joy of following Christ cannot withstand the challenge that comes, that comes with doing so in a world that has rejected him all too often. And Jesus says immediately, they fall away. Third is the person who is represented by soil that is full of thorn bushes. For this person, there are good signs initially, just like with the rocky soil. The seed sprouts, but when it comes up, it is crowded on all sides, and eventually the thorn bushes choke it out. The thorn bushes, Jesus said, are the things that tempt someone to abandon Christ. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things, they are the things that vie for our attention like the thorn bushes compete for sunlight and water. There isn't enough for both, which is why Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, he says. If the seeds of the word are trying to grow up through a tangle of thorns, the thorns will win, unless they are ripped out by the root. But riches and other things that Jesus refers to here, he, he describes as deceitful. They make promises to us, and they make us afraid of what we would do without them, how we would possibly survive without them. When Jesus was asked by a rich man how to enter God's kingdom, his answer was to give his money to the poor and then come and follow him. In fact, Jesus talked about money and material possessions a lot because those things have a unique ability to grip our hearts Money tempts us to believe that it can provide power and safety and honor. And believing that lie, the seeds of faith are choked out. They never really stood a chance. And that is part of Jesus' point in this parable. Hard ground, rocky soil, and ground that is full of weeds were never going to produce plants that were healthy and would produce a harvest. Even if the seeds sprouted, even if there were early signs of success, the pastor and theologian R.C. Sproul once said that a profession of faith doesn't save anyone at all. 
We must actually possess the faith that we profess if we are going to be justified by Christ. Even though there were signs of growth, perhaps a profession of faith represented by the seedling that is sprouting from the ground, if the ground is rocky or full of thorns, odds are that's as mature as that plant will ever get. The challenges of the Christian life and the temptations to abandon Christ surround that young plant. And they mean that it was doomed from the start. But there is a fourth type of soil in Jesus' parable, the good soil. It's soft and broken up, unlike the path, so that the seed lands and goes deep where it is protected from the devil's schemes. It has been cleared of stones so that the seed, once it begins to grow, can establish good, strong roots that will keep the plant strong and healthy through drought and heat waves. And it has been cleared of thorns and weeds so that as the plant grows, it will not be robbed of water and sunlight that it needs to flourish. It represents, we read in verse 20, the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear a miraculous harvest of 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. And then the same seed of the gospel that was sown and grown to maturity has multiplied and is ready to be sown into the lives of others. Only the good soil produces that harvest, but in every case, the seed itself is the same. It is the soil that the seed lands in that determines whether or not it will be able to grow or not. The gospel is the same. Christ is the same. But two people witnessing the same thing, hearing the same gospel, meeting the same Savior may lead to two completely different outcomes, and that's what we see happening right here in this passage as Jesus teaches this parable and then explains it. That's part of the reason I love Mark's gospel, because it appears at first glance to be simple and straightforward, an efficient and concise account of Jesus' life, but it is clever and complex and subtle. Here in this passage, the parable that Jesus teaches describes exactly what is happening at this point in the book of Mark. Jesus is the farmer who is casting the seed of God's word out everywhere he goes, and every different type of soil is present in the crowd that he is teaching on the banks of the water that day. Some will reject it, others will joyfully receive it, but eventually fall away, but some will go deep. We see that in verse 10, where a portion of the crowd, a much smaller group made up of the disciples and a handful of others come to ask him about this parable that he has shared. The seeds of the word have landed on what appears to be good soil. People who want to dig in, in whom strong roots of faith can grow. For them, Jesus represents more than the healing that he had provided from an illness or liberation from Roman oppression. These were the reasons that a great crowd had gathered to hear from him. But for this small group, he represents something more. They aren't sure what it is yet, but they know that there is something about Jesus that gives them a hope that transcends those things, and they want to know more. So they go looking for him and for answers. Like the rest of the crowd, they heard a story about gardening that gave some really basic advice about where some seeds are most likely to grow. They heard the same story as the rest of the crowd, but rather than going back home moving on with their lives, they want more, and they go looking for it. 
because seeds growing in good soil grow and bear fruit. And in grace, Jesus is bringing that about. We've already seen this type of thing earlier in the book. Jesus calls Peter and Andrew, his first two disciples, to come and follow him, and they drop everything. Literally, they're working with fishing nets because they were fishermen. They're working with fishing nets. They hear Jesus' voice to follow him. They drop everything and follow him. It isn't because they were amazing, faithful, devoted disciples. In fact, throughout the book of Mark, we, we will see illustrated again and again how they were just average guys who honestly made a lot of mistakes, culminating in the fact that on the night of Jesus' arrest, they abandoned him and scattered for fear of their own safety. Peter and the rest of the disciples did not follow Jesus because they were amazing disciples. They did not follow him because they were more clever than someone else, because they were more faithful than someone else. They followed Jesus because Jesus was the one who was calling them by name. Jesus, who speaks worlds into existence, said, follow me. So what's amazing is not that they did, it's that he called them in the first place. Here in chapter 4, Jesus begins and ends his parable with a command, similar to his command to follow him. In verses 3 and 9, the same word bookends the story, and it is the command to listen. Afterward, in his explanation, he refers to hearing six more times, concluding that the people represented by the good soil are those who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit. So there are those in this crowd who will hear the word, and there are those in this crowd who will hear the word and accept it. There are those who will hear Jesus. The seed lands on them, but it never takes root, or if it does, it soon withers. And there are those who hear Jesus, and everything changes, who believe his word and then build their lives on it. And it is grace, grace alone, that makes that possible in the first place. The reason I think that Jesus' gracious authority is what makes the difference in this passage is because of what he says right in the middle. When a few people come to ask him, about this parable about seeds and basic farming advice, he quotes from the book of Isaiah. He referred to it in the parable itself at the very end. Now he quotes from it directly and at length. You might see it indented in your Bible. At first, that quote seems out of place, uh, perhaps unrelated to what Jesus is talking about with this parable. So sometimes when people talk about the parable of the soils, they overlook this Isaiah reference altogether. But when we do that, I think we're at risk of drawing totally different conclusions about what Jesus is saying here than what he intends. He answers their question about this parable by first saying, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside, everything is in parables. He is telling them that the reason that they're here right now, the reason that they are asking this question in the first place is that they have been given something. A gift has been given to them, the secret of the kingdom of God. In grace, God has revealed something to them that he has not revealed to everyone. Just as he called Peter and Andrew and Levi and the other nine disciples, he has called these people out of this crowd that were standing on the beach that day. He has opened their ears to hear. But, Jesus quotes from Isaiah, for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, 
and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Parables, Jesus is saying, point to something that not everyone is able to see. To explain what he means, he quotes from Isaiah 6. In that famous scene, Isaiah, the prophet of God, has a vision of God, and it overwhelms him. He sees heavenly creatures worshiping God, and he sees God's holiness. And in the light of that holiness, God reveals Isaiah's own unholiness in a way that he had never seen or understood before. So rather than responding with joy and joining in the worship of God alongside these heavenly creatures, Isaiah's only response is to say, woe is me, because I see my sin. He knew that God's holiness and his own unholiness were at war with one another, and having seen just a glimpse of the might and majesty of God, he knows that he does not stand a chance anymore. But just as Isaiah thinks that he will be obliterated by the holy presence and wrath of God, something crazy happens to him. A heavenly creature comes down and takes a red-hot coal from the altar and touches it to Isaiah's lips and tells him that his sin has been atoned for and his guilt taken away. It is better than anything Isaiah could have possibly hoped for. He thought he was on the edge of absolute destruction, and now he has tasted the grace of God. So when God says, right after that, whom shall I send? Who will be my envoy to proclaim my word to my people? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And that's usually where we stop reading. It's a perfect ending to, to this scene, the perfect introduction to Isaiah and to his work as a prophet. But the scene does not stop there. In the very next verse, God tells Isaiah what his mission will be. He says, go and say to these people, go and say to my people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and turn with their ears and understand with their hearts and be healed. God is making his people into the likeness of the idols that they worship. He is making it so that just like their idols, these people will have eyes but see nothing and ears but hear nothing. And Isaiah's ministry is what God will use to bring it about. Rather than causing these people to turn toward God, he says that Isaiah's preaching will harden their hearts against God. It will drive them even further away. Calls for repentance will be rejected by people who think that they have nothing to repent for and resent the suggestion that they do. Calls to be humble before God will make the people even more proud in His presence, and warnings about God's coming judgment will be met with disdain and denial. And it is Isaiah's preaching that will drive these people further and further away from God and further and further into the judgment that he has warned that he will bring. Only a tiny fraction will listen, turn from sin, and cast themselves on the mercy of God. This is what Jesus chooses to quote as he explains why he teaches in parables. For every person in the crowd that day, the seed was the same. The word they heard was the same for all of them. But for some it is judgment, and some it is grace. In the hearts of some it will grow and it will bear fruit. It will change other, everything. In others it won't. It will remain a mystery because they are hardened against God, 
and his rule. They are hardened against God's Son and his call for them to listen and accept the word. That is the common feature that ties together the hard-packed soil, the rocky soil, and the soil that is full of thorns. None of them think that they need it. The hard soil rejects the word as untrue. The rocky soil holds it at arm's length, never draws it close so that it never develops roots, and the thorny ground thinks that there is something else out there, something else that is better than this word. Only the person that is represented by good soil believes and treasures the word. One pastor writing on this parable explains that it is the very same sun that both hardens the clay and melts the wax. With one story about seeds and soil, Jesus is simultaneously drawing his people close and also giving a warning about coming judgment to those who are not. The gospel itself, the word of God, will distinguish between those who are saved by grace and those who deny that they need it in the first place. The parable of the soils helps us understand how it is that two people can encounter the very same gospel and the same Jesus and come away with completely different beliefs about him. It explains why the crowd that is following him now will turn against him one day, why the Pharisees bristle against his authority, why the disciples left everything to follow him while others had no interest in him at all. And it explains why the gospel today is heard and believed by some And for others, it is a fantasy. And it helps us understand how, how it is that those who don't know Christ or the gospel today might one day. Because God can change the soil. He breaks up hard ground. He plows up stones and he rips out thorns. If you are in Christ, rejoice today. Because that is what he has done for you. Before you ever had the inkling of a thought that maybe this Christianity thing is for real, before you turned toward him, before you accepted him as your savior or submitted to him as king, he was pulling up stones and ripping weeds out of your life. Then someone appointed by our sovereign and loving God threw the seeds of the gospel into your life, and he made them begin to grow. He opens ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive the gospel. He alone can reveal what is hidden, the secret of the kingdom of God. The same is true for every person that we share the gospel with. If we plant the seed of the gospel in the lives of those around us and others come along and water it, God alone is the one who causes it to grow. He makes that tiny seed split open when he makes us long for a savior. When he opens our eyes, like he did with Isaiah, to the fact that we need grace. When we consider what he gave, that we might be set free from sin and guilt and from death itself, that fragile seedling grows and grows and begins to develop the seeds of the gospel that will be sent out to other soil that God has been getting ready to receive it. This is the heart of the gospel itself. The secret of God's kingdom is that it is all grace. No one comes based on merit. It is not the good people or the clever people or the law-keeping people or strong people who have their citizenship in God's kingdom. The ground itself has no ability to clear its own stones, no ability to clear its own thorns, no ability to break itself up and make itself soft for the gospel. It is grace that does this. It is those who know, like Isaiah, 
that they are neither good nor clever nor strong nor obedient, who know that their only hope is in God's willingness to be merciful and kind to us. That is the good soil, where the word of that mercy is buried deeply, and it grows and bears much fruit to the glory of God alone. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you today, the God of all mercy and grace, who does not neglect sin, but makes a way for our salvation. We pray that you would make us good soil. Soften our hearts by revealing your glory, convicting us of sin, so that we will receive the message of grace with great and abiding joy. Give us strong roots that are able to withstand hardship and persecution. Clear away the deceitfulness of riches and everything that might choke out our trust and joy in your gospel and your son. Strengthen our faith so that in eternity the glory for our justification is yours and yours alone. Make our hearts good soil for the gospel, Lord, we pray, that it would bear much fruit to be scattered into the world around us. We pray these things, Lord, in the name of Christ, who is our Savior. Amen.